This is Neon Radio, episode 146, with Alex Benayan. Welcome to Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, fashion and lifestyle photographer for today's top brands, performers, and game changers. On this podcast, we explore the body, mind, and soul of the creative entrepreneur, bringing you inspiring guests to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's episode of Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this week's episode, we have a wonderful guest who is just releasing his new book called The Third Door. His name is Mr. Alex Benayan. The reason I want to have Alex on the show is because his book really really pertains to the business side of creative entrepreneurship. And the whole concept of The Third Door is that there are three doors that people can go through. There's the first door, which is the one that everyone goes through by waiting in line, doing as you're told, you know, waiting in line at the door, essentially. And the second door is is where the VIPs go. It's the celebrity access. It's, you know, family access. It's, it's already given to you or given to certain people. And the third door is really, it's, it's the unconventional way to get to where you want to go. And that could be building certain relationships. That's having the resilience to get rejected. It's going after it and finding every nook and cranny that you can use to get you to where you want to go. And that's really what it takes to be a creative entrepreneur in my perspective. And also in another light, I feel like photography for me has been my third door. It's gotten me into many situations and many circles that it's created the gateway for. And it's it's gotten me in to be able to build the relationships that I've built in my life and build the space that's gotten me to where I am now. And so Alex's story is quite an amazing one. He is now 24 and he started this book seven years ago when he was in college. And he started the journey by his vision of wanting to interview people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And the book is all about him getting to that. But he started by hacking his way to win The Price is Right, which is an amazing story that you'll get to hear here on the podcast and when you read the book. Definitely recommend it. It's filled with amazing stories and wisdom and his learnings of what he has learned throughout the last few years of writing the book and the journey that he's gone on. He's interviewed Jessica Alba, Larry King, and many, many big people at such a young age for the book. And the book is such a great story. Definitely recommend buying it. You can get it at thirddoor.com. Pick it up there. Also, if you want to check out the show notes, you can do that over at neonradio.com slash EP146. And neon is spelled N-I-O-N. It's actually the first two letters of my first and last names. This is where it came from. So we'll have everything linked up over there. Also, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about your own creative journey and get a start, head over to neonlife.com slash quiz. Take the short 10-question quiz, and we'll serve you up some free content to help you accelerate where you are in your own creative journey. And also, you can go over and join the Facebook community over at neonlife.com slash community. Connect with other creatives. So with that, I bring to you the one, the only, Mr. Alex Benayan. 
What's up, guys? Today we have Alex Benayan on the show. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, man. I'm excited, excited to, to talk about you and your story and your new book coming out. And, Thank uh, you, man. There's a lot of great lessons and a lot of my friends in the book. <laughs> I think that was the first thing I told you. I'm like, did you enjoy knowing half the people in the book? It's so funny. It's so funny. I'm like, oh, it's Mickey and Andrew and like and Cal and, and all these guys. So it's, yeah. it's really great. But uh, I'm excited for you. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. You're here in New York. And, uh, you know, obviously we're going to have to start with the main story in here of how you hacked your way... <laughs> Onto the prices, right? Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, one of, one of the things that I wanted to kind of hit here is one of the lessons in the book from Elliot, the founder mm. of Summit, that that I guess he taught you was it's not necessarily the story, it's how you tell the story. Mm. So I'd love to hear you tell the story and then learn how you shifted the story after you got that advice. Yeah, that, that piece of advice changed me because... And I think for a lot of, you know, whether it's an artist or a writer, sometimes we can get so fixated on what happened. Yeah. And you forget that it's really your lens of what happened that makes it a story. Yeah. So it really started about seven years ago. So I was a freshman in college, 18 years old, and I was going through this life crisis. I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. Mm. And to understand why I was going through it, you have to understand where I came from, which is I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. <laughs> you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween, and I thought I was cool. Wow. Like, that was my childhood, you know? I went to pre-med summer camp in high school. And by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. But really quickly... I don't know if you can relate to this, like, I started to, you know, feel like something was off, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I was hitting snooze five or six times each morning, and I remember, like, lying on my dorm room bed, staring over at this stack of biology books and feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. Yeah. So at first, I assumed I was just being lazy, but then I started to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Mm. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on, and I'm just rolling down. So now this whole life crisis of what I want to do with my life kicks in. And like, not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, I have no idea how all these people who I looked up to, how they did it. And how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software when nobody knew his name? Mm. Or how did Spielberg you know, become the youngest director in Hollywood history when he was rejected from film school? Those are things they don't normally teach you in school. So I remember like going to the library and just ripping through business books and self-help books and biographies. But eventually I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive, you know, thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I would just like call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everyone else. I'll be done in a few months. <laughs> that I thought would be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting money to fund the journey. You know, I'd have to fly to Seattle to meet with Bill because obviously he's going to say yes right away. And I was buried in tuition payment, and I was all out of bar mitzvah cash, so there had to be a way to make some quick money. Yeah. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> and I'm on Facebook, and I see someone posting saying, you know, free tickets to The Price is Right. And, you know, it's the longest-running game show in U.S. history. And my first thought, and it's still, like, preposterous to think back on it, was... 
what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? Mm. You know, not my brightest moment, but I had a problem because I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. I'd seen like bits and pieces as a kid growing right, up. Right. You know, when you're homesick, that's all, that's all that was on TV at the time. I didn't have like cable growing up, so it was just the price is right. I'd never seen a full episode, plus at finals in two days. I told myself, you know, it was a stupid idea and to forget about it and focus on studying, but it was one of those ideas that keeps like clawing itself into your mind. So I remember in the library making this like pro and cons list to prove to myself it was a bad idea. <laughs> and I like, you know, I opened my spiral notebook and I wrote, you know, best and worst case scenarios. You know, worst case scenarios. Get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no, mom hates me, you know, look fat on TV. There's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. Mm-hmm. And it felt almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was pulling in a direction. Mm. So that night I did the logical thing and I pulled an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals, I instead had to hack the prices right. <laughs> and I go on the show the next day and in my all-nighter, I had learned something really surprising. It was around 4 a.m. And anyone who's seen The Price is Right, you know, knows the iconic, Nick, come on down! You know, as if they pulled your name out of a hat. Right, right, right. As if it's like complete random luck. But what I learned is that there's actually a system to it. So, you know, you know how entertainment works. There's a producer who interviews everyone in the audience before the show goes on. Yeah. And on top of that, the producer makes a list of, you know, his favorite contestants. And then there's an undercover producer who <laughs> then is like planted in the audience who confirm or denies the original list. Mm. So when I got to the CBS studios the next morning, I didn't know who the undercover producer is. So I just assumed everyone was an undercover producer. So I'm like <laughs> dancing with old ladies. I'm hugging the janitors. I'm break dancing. And I don't know how to break dance. And I'm waiting around until it's finally my turn to be interviewed. And the second I see him, like, I know who my guy is. Like, that's Stan. He's the, he's the casting producer. And I knew, like, all about him. I knew where he grew up. I knew where he went to school. And I knew he has a clipboard, but it's never in his hands. It's, you know, about 20 feet behind him in his assistant's hands. Mm. And if Stan likes you, you know, he has a rhythm to his moves. If he likes you, he'll ask you another question. And if he really likes you, he'll turn around, wink, and his assistant will put your name on the clipboard. So if the price is right as a nightclub, Stan is the bouncer. And if you don't get on his list, you're yep. out, right? Yep. No, there's no second chance. You're either on or you're not. So it's finally my turn. And he's like, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And I go, hey, I'm Alex. I'm 18 years old. I'm a freshman in college, studying pre-med. And he goes, pre-med? You must spend a lot of time studying. How do you have time to watch the price is right? And I go, oh, is that where I am? <laughs> you know, like dead silence, no laughter, not even a pity laugh. Oh. And I realized I'm like, I'm bombing it. So I needed to, you know, make, you know, something turn around fast. And I had read in a book, it might've been like a Tony Robbins book that said like human contact speeds up a relationship. Mm. So I had an idea. I needed to touch Stan. <laughs> But he's like 20 feet away from me and I'm behind this like metal railing. So I'm like, Stan, come over here. I want to make a handshake with you. 
And he's like very reluctant, but he eventually comes over and I teach him how to, you know, pound it and blow it up. <laughs> and, you know, he like, he like chuckles and he's like, all right, man, you, you know, you have great energy, good luck. And he walks away. Yeah. Doesn't turn around to his assistant. She doesn't write anything on the clipboard. And I don't know if you've been in one of these moments where you can see your entire dream, like right in front of you, slipping away, almost like sand slipping through your fingers. Mm-hmm. And the worst part is, you know you didn't even have a chance to fully prove yourself. Like that's what eats at me the most. Right. So I don't know what got into me, but I started feeling this like sensation in the pit of my stomach. And I started yelling at the top of my lungs, Stan! You know, the whole audience turns around and you know, they think I'm having like a seizure. So like Stan <laughs> runs over and he's like, are you okay, what's going on? And I just look at him. And I have no idea what I'm going to say. And, you know, everyone is looking and the tension is high. And, you know, Stan is like typical Hollywood, you know, turtleneck, red scarf, even though it's 70 degrees outside. And I'm just like, your scarf. And now I really don't know what I'm going to say next. (laughs) So I just like with all of the seriousness I can muster, I just like look at him dead in the eyes and I'm like, I'm an avid scarf collector. I have 362 pairs in my dorm room and I'm missing that one. Where did you get it? And he starts cracking up because I think he finally realized what I was doing. And he was laughing more at like why I was doing it. Right. So he like gives me his scarf. He's like, dude, you need this more than I do. He turns around, winks, and his assistant makes a mark on the clipboard. So Amazing. Thanks, man. So I move along. and So the line keeps moving. And I notice this young woman, you know, mid-twenties, long brown hair. And she keeps like looking around the audience a lot. And I look and she has like this laminated badge sticking out of her back pocket. And she has to be the undercover producer. Mm. So I start, I had like, I'm 18, I like just come out of puberty. So I'm like blowing her kisses, I'm like dancing. And she starts laughing, so I'm like blowing her more kisses. She looks at my name badge, takes out a sheet of paper, makes a mark. You know, so at this point, you would think I feel on top of the world. But that's when I had realized I had spent the entire night before studying how to get on the show. I still didn't know how the show worked, you know, but, you know, not a problem. I take out my phone and I Google how to play prices Right, you know, not rocket science. And I'm like reading and about 30 seconds later, I feel a tap on my shoulder and security takes my phone away. Oh, no. So now I have, like, no plan B. And I remember sitting on this, like, you know, this cold metal bench. And this old woman who I'm sitting next to with, you know, silver hair, she looks at me and she can sense something's wrong. And so she asks me what's going on and I just start venting to her. I tell her about my dream. I tell her about finals. I tell her about, you know, not knowing how the show works. And she just, like, pinches my cheek and she's like, you remind me of my grandson. And I ask her if she has any advice. And she's like, honey, I've been watching the show for 40 years. And she starts giving me this incredible advice. And it's like, it feels like decades of wisdom is downloading into my head. Right. So, so I have this idea, you know, I thank her, I give her a hug and I jump to the person next to me. I'm like, hey, I'm Alex, I'm 18. I've never seen the show before. Do you have any advice? And I jump to another group. Hey, I'm Alex, I'm 18. I've never seen the show before. Do you have any advice? And I jump to like groups and groups and groups <laughs> of people. In over an hour, I talked to almost like half the audience crowdsourcing their wisdom. And finally, the doors to the studio open. And I step inside. And the place smells like the 1970s. 
You know, like it, it smells like how it looks. You know, there's like red velvet seats, like flashing lights, you know, yellow and green drapes, like all that's missing is a disco ball. And you get in there and they instantly hit you with the music, everyone's cheering. And that's when I hear the very iconic sound, live from CBS studio in Hollywood, it's The Price is Right. And you know, they call down the first contestant and the second <laughs> contestant and the third contestant, it's not me, but for the fourth, I feel it coming and I'm like about to stand up and it's still not me. So I just like sink back in my chair thinking like, whatever, like I have finals tomorrow, like maybe it's for the best. Yeah. And you know, the way the show works is one of the contestants win, a, a spot in the podium opens up, and now it's time for the fifth contestant. Alex Benayan, come on down! And I lose my shit. There's no way to be calm in that moment. <laughs> like, I'm hugging strangers, I'm high-fiving, and I get there, and this, without a second to breathe, I hear a leather chair and ottoman. I'm a freshman in college. Like, I don't know how much milk costs. <laughs> so I'm sitting, I'm just standing there, and I'm like, $600 and like everybody's laughing at me. It turns out it was like, you know, $1,100. So, you know, I lose that round. The next round, a new billiards table. You know, my cousins have a billiards table. Like how expensive <laughs> can it be? So I'm like $600 again and the audience laughs at me. But because the audience laughed so loud, the other contestants bid like higher and higher and higher. <laughs> and they all overbid, so I won by default. So I'm like jumping up and down. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it's time for my bonus round. And that's when it gets really good because the doors open and behind it is this like sparkling, beautiful hot tub. You know, 12 jets, LED lights, a waterfall. And like, <laughs> I remember standing there on the stage and all I could think was like, if I win this hot tub, I am the king of college. So like all the pressure was on. Yeah. And I remember guessing like 4,000 bucks and it was $9,000. Oh wow. So I lose the hot tub and I'm about to walk off because I think it's over. And they're like, we'll be right back with the wheel. And I'm like, excuse me, who spins the wheel? And they're like, who spins? You spin. And essentially, I'm sure you've seen the I've show. I've seen it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the wheel is like, you know, this giant slot machine. And it gets carted up, and there's three people. It's me, this, you know, older Latino woman, and a, you know, young, curly hair, peppy girl, and it's finally time. Right. So the first woman goes up, you know, the curly hair girl, really peppy energy. And she goes and, like, spins, and it's like... 80 and the audience goes ballistic and even I know that's a really good spin because it's like yeah. 0 to 100 right you know so she's jumping up and down she's like wooing and now it's my turn so I go up and I'm like whatever I might as well have fun with this and I grab the handles and it's much heavier than it looks and you give it a spin and it's like 85 and the audience goes ballistic because they all know I have no idea what I'm doing. So they're dying. I'm going crazy. I move to the winner's circle and now it's time for, you know, the final woman. And she gives it a spin and... She goes over 100. I win and 
I go crazy because I think I just won the whole show. And then Drew Carey goes, we'll be right back with the second half of The Price is Right. <laughs> and my face is like, and pretty much I get moved to the side of the stage as I watch the second half go by and I find out who's going up against me in the final round. Right. And her name is Tanisha and she <laughs> blasted through the second half of the show as if she had spent her entire life walking through Costco studying price tags. Right. You know, like she won the opening round, she won the bonus round, and for the wheel, she spun a perfect 100 and got like a bonus cash prize. You know, she's been watching the show for years. Right, right, right. And, you know, I believe in karma to a degree, so when she got on the stage, right before the final round, I like reached out my hand and I was like, um, good luck. And she looks me up and down and she's like, yeah, you'll need it. And the whole audience is like, oh shit. Like it's super heated now. And I'm like, fuck, she's right. I do need it. So I, I realized that everyone in the audience had given me advice on how the show worked, but no one gave me advice on how the final round worked because no one thought I'd make it that far. Right. So I'm like, fuck, what am I going to do? So I see the host, Drew Carey. And I just like throw my arms in the air and I'm like, Drew, I loved you on Whose Line Is It Anyway? <laughs> and like, I give him this hug and he like awkwardly like pushes me away. And I'm like, Drew, any advice on the, on the showroom showdown? And he goes, <laughs> he goes, first of all, it's the showcase showdown. You know, clearly I didn't even know what it was called. And, you know, he gave me, you know, some nice advice. And before I knew it, it was time for, you know, the final round. And I run behind my podium, and there's like six machine gun-sized cameras pointed at my face. You know, the big ones on yeah, the wheels? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there's like seven blinding white lights. It's like a police interrogation. And I'm standing there. You know, Tanisha's dancing. I'm sweating, and it's like finally time for the final round. And first, it's, it's my turn. And I, he I hear what's going on, but you have to understand, there's no earpieces. So you have to be listening very, very carefully while the audience is cheering. I didn't know that. So I, this is what I hear. I hear, Alex, your first prize is Six Flags, the Magic Mountain theme park, blah, 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 blah. You know, some random details. And, you know, I grew up in LA. I knew that was a theme park. And I'm like, how expensive could that be? Like 50 bucks with a can of Coke? Like I've seen the commercials. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, cool, 50 bucks, easy, next. What I hadn't heard in the blah, blah, blah is that it was front of the line passes, all you can eat food, like butler service in a limo for six people. And I'm like, all right, cool, 50 bucks, easy, next. Your next prize is a trip to Florida, blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, I'm 18, I've never booked a plane ticket in my life. I'm like, <laughs> what is that, like 100 bucks, like 200 bucks? Again, what I hadn't heard is it was for, it was, Rental car, five-star hotel for two people. But I'm like, cool, 200 bucks, easy, next. <laughs> While you're in Florida, a trip into zero gravity. And you know, I thought that was like maybe another theme park. So I'm like, cool, okay, another 50 bucks. What I didn't understand is that this was how NASA trains their astronauts. <laughs> oh and every God. 15 minutes in zero gravity is $5,000. Wow. So wow. again, you know, I'm 50 bucks, easy, next while, you know, you're coming back from zero gravity, you're in for 
adventure on the high seas with this brand new sailboat. And like the doors open, and I see the sailboat, and of course I'm freaking out. But when I finally calm down and I look at where the sailboat is, it's probably like, you know, 50 feet away from me on the other side of the stage. It sort of looks like a dinghy. It's like super small and like, you know, I don't really hear the details. So I'm like, how much could a dinghy cost? You know, like 4,000, 5,000, like I have no idea, you know? And what I hadn't heard is that it was a Catalina Mark II sailboat with a cabin and a trailer. And I'm thinking, all right, cool. Definitely $4,000. <laughs> and they're like, it'll all be yours if the price is right. So, you know, it's my time. I calculate the numbers in my head. And, you know, I'm not like super religious, but I, you know, I believe in God. And I'm like, look, if I made it this far onto the show, someone up there wants me to win. So I'm just going to listen to that voice inside. So I'm like, I'm listening to that voice and I, I hear the voice loud and clear. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go with it. $6,000, Drew. Dead silence. <laughs> it's as if like somebody had passed away on the stage of The Price is Right. You know, dead, dead silence. And I'm super confused because all day the audience had been cheering. So I realized Drew Carey hasn't locked it. You know, he always says, all right, we're locking it in. He hasn't said that yet. So he's like standing right here and I'm here. <laughs> I like finally look at him and he's just like, and I eventually get the hint so I like reach back for the microphone and I'm like, just kidding? And everybody like starts cheering. He's like, oh, college kids these days, what's your real answer? And I'm thinking, fuck, that was my real answer. So I'm like shit out of luck. And I just, I don't know what got into me, but I just start pounding the podium. I'm like, audience, I need your help. And they start like, shouting out numbers, but eventually they start chanting this one number. <laughs> but it's a mob, you know, you can't understand a mob. And, but I hear like the TH sound and they're like, Alex, we need your answer. So I'm like, all right, Drew, I'm going with the audience. $3,800. And he literally like grabs the mic and goes, you know, there's a difference between 3,000 and 30,000, right? And I'm like, of course I know that. I was just messing with you. 30,000. And he goes, great, we're locking it in. And Tanisha looks at me. Like she's like going up against someone from preschool. <laughs> like Tanisha. Oh my God. I'll never forget Tanisha's face. And <laughs> it's finally Tanisha's turn. She has like a car and an ATV and a vacation. And she guesses, I don't know, let's say $35,000. And now it's time to reveal the winner. Tanisha, you guessed $35,000. Retail price, 36400 And you know, Tanisha loses it. She's like thanking God. She just won a new car. And I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, all right, if I leave right now and go straight to the library, I have three hours for bio, two hours for chemistry. Mom doesn't even know I'm here. I'm just like doing crisis management in my head at this point. <laughs> and they're like, Alex, you guessed $30,000 retail price, blah, 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 blah. But you notice the audience is going like crazy. And the producers are like pointing at me. So like, out of curiosity, I like turn around to check my podium to see what it says. And it's funny, if you see the episode, you literally see me like turn around to check it. And I had guessed $30,000. Retail price, 31200 I beat Tanisha by $200. Oh my God. And literally my face goes from this to, ah! you know, I'm jumping up and down. I'm hugging the supermodels. I'm dancing on the sailboat. I get the sailboat, sell the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. <laughs> 
And it's just been this like unbelievable journey the past, it's now been this seven year journey. And you know, I used the sailboat money and it took two years when I finally got to Bill Gates. It took three years to get to Lady Gaga. And the cool thing about what's happened the past seven years is the journey itself taught me so many lessons along the way, just as much as the interviews did. And the interviews were incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's man, such it's a great been... story. But first, like, what, how, what did, what was Tanisha's face when she lost? <laughs> I, 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 the funny thing is, like, you know, a, when a show airs on TV, it also goes to like CBS.com. And I remember like watching it the next day after it aired on CBS.com and like looking at Tanisha the whole time. I have a screenshot of her literally just walking off like. <laughs> Because, you know, poor woman, she deserved it. You know, she'd been studying the show. She guessed perfectly. Right. Like, oh, my God. Like, my heart goes out. To, like, she, and, you know, she was very kind at the end. Yeah. But, wow. you know, thank God for that day because that's how I got the money to fund, fund the yeah. adventures. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a crazy, crazy story. It's been wild. So let's reframe a little bit here and, you know, go back to what we were talking about in the beginning. It's like, how did you, how were you telling that story before you met mm. Elliot and after you learned his advice of learning how to tell stories? So when I had first met Elliot Bisno, who started Summit Series, which yeah. you know a lot about, I reached out to him, you know, not to interview him, but really because I was trying to get to Bill Gates and Gates' office told me, look, you need to build momentum. And I was like, what the fuck is momentum? Yeah. And when I was researching online, I found this guy who started this cruise ship with Richard Branson on it. I was just like, oh. So I reached out to him just for advice on momentum. Yeah. And what ended up happening is Elliot not only responded to my email, but he became my biggest mentor and one of my best friends. And like you said, he really taught me that so much of getting people to come along on your journey and to support and to help it is to inspire them. And the best way to inspire people is through story. Mm. And... You know, in hindsight, it makes complete sense. But when I'm 19 years old, this was like rocket science to me, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I remember the first time I had ever told Elliot about The Price is Right, I didn't even want to tell him about it. I was embarrassed. Yeah. This was a year after The Price is Right, and we were, it was in our first meeting. And he, Elliot's really good at just like digging and getting quite like firing questions and, you know, finding out mm-hmm. like sort of like this, this, you know, the landscape of someone's life yeah. very quickly. So he's like, how are you funding this? Like, do you have rich parents? Like, what, what, what's the deal? And I was like, well, have you heard of The Price is Right? And he's like, everyone's heard of The Price is Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, what about it? I'm like, well, and I like told him literally in like one sentence, I was like, I went on The Price is Right and won a sailboat and sold the boat and that's how I funded the book. And we were having breakfast and he like drops his fork and he's like, fucking kidding me. <laughs> he's like, you're an idiot. He's like, we've been together for two hours and you haven't brought that up. And what he told me is like, never again will you go into a meeting and not share that with someone. Mm. And what he was trying to tell me is exactly that. Like, the way you tell, and he said this great line, which is brilliant. He's such a smart guy. He goes, everyone has experiences in their life. Some choose to make them into stories. Mm. Everyone has experiences in their life. Some choose to make them into stories. And I was 19. I didn't fully understand what that meant. And I think Elliot soon realized I didn't understand what that meant. 
So what happened is that as Elliot and I ended up that summer, you know, traveling to Europe together and he started taking me under his wing, he would start telling me anywhere we would go, Alex, tell them the Price is Right story. <laughs> and I would fumble my way through because when I was younger, I thought the, these people, you know, don't want, especially if they're, you know, powerful people in business, the last thing they want to hear is a teenager's like game show antics. So I would try to like mm -hmm. rush through it, just say like the key facts and Elliot would literally interject the story and like take over. And he's like, no, 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 this is what happened. And he would like, he would show me how it's not about how quick the story is. It's about how fun and entertaining the story is. Mm. You can tell someone a 30 second boring story and they'll hate it. You can tell them a 30 minute fun story and they'll love it. And there's this, at least when I grew up, there was this whole notion of like, people are busy and they want things quick. They want the key facts. Yeah. And Elliot helped me realize that that's not always true. Mm. And with the story, you know, the key elements, and we can dissect it however much you want, but you know, humor is one of the most universal parts of the human experience, you know? Absolutely. And something that he helped me understand better than anyone is I would always gloss over the parts in the story that were the most embarrassing because there's a lot of embarrassing moments in that story. Right. And he, when Elliot would tell the story to other people, he would like only talk about the embarrassing moments and I would get, you know, I would turn red. Right. But I would realize like that's what made people relate to me the most. Mm. And as I've like over the years shared the story more, I've realized that sharing the moments where I was you know, the most embarrassed or, you know, the stupidest, whatever you want to call it, are actually some of the most enjoyable parts of that story. Right. Because everyone, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, Bill Gates or a college freshman, everyone's fallen flat on their face. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone's felt like a fool. Yeah. And everyone can relate. I like that. Yeah. Like Elliot that. is, he's just incredible. So, so what would be your top, th like, top three things to telling it? like a compelling story. Hmm. I learned a lot of these from Cal Fussman as I was writing the book. And, you know, Cal's episode on this podcast was incredible. For those who haven't listened to it, definitely listen to it. Yeah. Because it's just unbelievable. And, you know, as you know, Cal is the, you know, writer at large at Esquire magazine, has written multiple best-selling books. And he taught me a few elements that hmm. I've learned whether you're writing a story or telling a story or the keys. And, you know, you do it very naturally, but for me, it was very new to me. And these were the keys. Number one, every good story, and this is like dissecting it, you know, inside baseball in a way. Yeah. Every good story needs conflict. Now, that doesn't mean, when Cal first explained that to me, I thought that meant like there needed to be like a fight or a war that's not what it means. Yeah. What, what he explained is that conflict can be as simple as, I have this dream to write this book. I don't have money. That's a conflict. Mm. I have this idea. What if I go on The Price is Right? But I have finals in two days. That's a conflict. All right, I'm on The Price is Right. Fuck, I don't know how to play conflict. And if you go into any story, whether it's how you met the love of your life, if you look at that story, there are always going to be moments of conflict mm. where 
you really want to talk to her, but she's currently dating someone else. Conflict. It, those are the yeah. things that actually um, create tension. Mm-hmm. And the so that's the that's one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. The second, and we touched on, upon this briefly, is and you know the word vulnerability is of course used a lot, especially in our you know circle of friends. But in writing, it's incredibly important because it was exactly what Elliot was telling me. The more you open yourself up and show the parts of yourself that you're embarrassed of. Mm the more you'll understand that those moments are actually what people relate to the most. And there's, you know, the great song, I took a pill in Ibiza, right? Right. So I think that's one of the best opening lines because the opening line is, I took a pill in Ibiza, which is totally unrelatable. I've never done it. Right. But the next line is very relatable. To show Avicii I was cool. I've done that a million, not Avicii, but I've, you know, I've, I've done it with, you know, my whole life is me trying to show someone I'm cool and I end up doing something stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I just think like, whether it's the, the best songwriters, the best artists, the best storytellers, it's them opening themselves up about the things that have you know, caused them the most pain or the most embarrassment and putting it out there. And that's what makes for a human story. Got it. You hide that stuff and it's not a human story, it's PR fluff. You know, and no one likes that. So that's number two. Number three, and this is the most complicated one. At least it was the hardest for me to understand. Mm -hmm. It's called gripping the story. And if you think about it, imagine you're like, you know, in a pottery class and there's all this clay spinning around. Imagine literally like gripping that clay in your hand, like molding it and throwing it down on the table. Like that's what you need to do with a good story. And the way you do that, and it took Cal years for me to help me understand that, is, I'll give you an example. You know, one chapter in the book is the story of my meeting with Mark Zuckerberg and how it sort of goes awry and becomes this big catastrophe. (laughs) And like people threaten to call the police. And I would keep writing that chapter and Cal was sort of like my Mr. Miyagi in the sense that like I would write a chapter, show it to him, and he's like, no good, go write it again, (laughs) you know? Yeah. That's sort of what he would do for me. And I kept writing it and rewriting and rewriting it. And Cal was like, you still haven't gripped it. And again, what he was helping me realize is I was telling what happened with the Zuckerberg situation. And he's like, what's the grip? What's the, the heart of the story? Mm. And the way you get the grip or the frame of the story is you first have to understand what the essence of it is. So the essence he helped me realize was that in life, most things don't work out. That was, and that was the heart of the story, but it was never said in the story. Right. So once he helps, Cal is like a psychotherapist for storytelling. <laughs> he can find like the heart of the matter yeah. that no one is saying, but it's underneath. He has x-ray vision. And once he helped me realize that the whole Zuckerberg story isn't about Zuckerberg. It's about a 20-year-old kid realizing that sometimes even when something's right in your lap and you're you know, at the 99-yard line, it still has a chance of falling apart. Mm. So what we did is we started the chapter with, the opening, with two opening sentences that completely ch- changed the chapter. The opening two sentences are, the founder of TED once told me, I live my life by two mantras, 
One, if you don't ask, you don't get. And two, most things don't work out. <laughs> and then the next line goes, and now I had made my most far-fetched ask yet, and it was working out better than I'd ever imagined. And that's the grip of this, that's the grip of the story. So now as the reader goes into it, they're going, oh, this is a story about things working out. Mm -hmm. And then they get hit at the end with it all falling apart at the oh, end. Oh no. <laughs> so those I would say would be three amazing tent poles of you know, really powerful storytelling. Those are great. Thank you, man. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, let's actually now let's talk about the third door. What is the third door? You know, the in the context of, you know. The book is about how do you connect with people mm -hmm. as far as like the overall arcing thing. And they're the three doors of, of how do you connect with people. So I'd love to hear a quick explanation of, uh, from your perspective on how, how, how the three doors differ. Yeah, and it's really funny because when I had first started writing the book and going on the journey, you know, we've all seen those TED Talks or those business books with like the one key to success and I always roll my eyes. But what ended up happening, and you'll appreciate this from like an artist's perspective, is that after I started doing the interviews and like writing them down, like 70% into the journey, I started realizing there was like this common melody in every story. Mm. And the analogy that came to me, because I was like 21 at the time, was it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. So there's always three ways in. Yep. There's the first door where everybody waits in line hoping to get in. You know, the line curves around the block. Oh, I don't do lines. Right? It's 99% <laughs> of society. They're just standing there holding their resume, hoping the bouncer lets them in. That's the first door, the main entrance. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and the celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it like everybody else. Mm. But what I've learned and what you know very well is that there's always, always the third door, and it's a door where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen, there's always a way in. Yep. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Spielberg became the youngest director in Hollywood history, they all took the third door. So that's not only you know the title of the book and the thesis of the book, that's really the energy I'm trying to inject into each reader. Yeah, it's like if there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. If you can really like go around. I mean, photography for me has been a third door in a certain yeah. sense. Is it's given me access to all these different circles that I wouldn't have normally had otherwise. But yeah, I mean, that's just like one aspect of it. And you're, this book is so much about like taking a look at the situation and figuring out every way that you can, you yeah. can get I, to that A person. friend of mine once asked me like, it's such a good question. She said, if the third door was a party, what would the banner say? I was like, huh. And I remember this one sentence came to me the second she asked that, and it's, I was like, the banner would say, there's always a way. And that's really essentially what you just said, which is once you have this third door analogy and you're like subscribed to it, instantly what happens is you start believing there's always a way. Right. While all your other friends are like, dude, there's no chance. Yeah. You're like, no, there has to be a way. There has to be a way. And what I've learned is that when you change what you believe is possible, you change what becomes possible. Absolutely. And that changes everything. Yeah. And I mean, that's just a, a way of looking at life in general. Like yeah. not just like connecting with people, but like getting to the, getting the job you want, getting, right. 
anything that you want, there's always a way. Yeah. There's always a way to like, you know, you have to do some finagling and some extra networking and like maybe some other different things, but there's always a way to get there. 100%. And I mean, that's what's great about like the book is it really talks, like talks towards that. Thank you, man. So I appreciate that. that. Yeah. So now let's jump into, now you talk about the flinch. Mm. Tell us about the flinch. Hmm. So there was obviously, you know, a lot of points in this journey where I would be inches away from a goal. You know, let's say I'm going into a party to try to meet Steven Spielberg. You know, I would do all this work to get in. I did all this research on him. And the second he's actually right in front of me, 10 feet away, I would freeze. My feet would turn to stone. It felt like my mouth would be wired shut. My throat would clench. And I call that sensation the flinch. And the flinch really, I first felt it when I was about, you know, eight years old in like third grade. And I remember going to the elementary school cafeteria, sitting at these like long wooden tables. And my friend Harrison was to my left, you know, with his granola bars and potato chips. And Ben was to my right with, you know, his sandwich with a cuss crud off. And then there was me with like my big Tupperware of like Persian <laughs> rice and green stew with like red kidney beans on top. And I remember like opening the lid and the smell like spread everywhere. And all the kids, cause they're eight, like just point at me and start laughing. And they're like, oh, do you have rotten eggs for lunch? And I remember turning like bright red and just feeling so embarrassed. And you know, from that day on, I remember saving my lunch in my backpack until like after school, eating it alone. And you know, it started out very simply as like my fear of being different or my fear of rejection or my fear of failure. But as I grew older, it grew with me to the mm. point where the flinch was this living, breathing being. Mm. And something that I've, in hindsight, can see about this journey of this book is that it wasn't just a journey of you know, getting to Bill Gates and learning from him and overcoming those obstacles. It was also an internal journey mm-hmm. of overcoming the flinch and dealing with it yeah. to make the dream come true. Absolutely. So what now, if you, obviously if we unpack, you know, the idea of that, most, most things like the flinch come from like our upbringing. Where would you say that you picked that up from mm, in your oh upbringing? Oh my God. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely comes from that. And it's funny because when we're kids, we create all these stories about ourselves mm-hmm. um, without knowing it. Yeah. it. It's just a human you know, a natural part of the human experience. And when I was a kid, you know, I just, I was like really chubby and I had a lot of insecurities and like mm. the kids at school would call me like Fatty Benayan. And, you know, I had, I remember like anytime I had a crush on a girl, like they would laugh at me and like growing up, that was <laughs> sort of like my childhood. And also being like an immigrant family, like, I remember like my dad picking me up from school, like blasting Persian music, and I'd be like so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, no. And like, you know, in hindsight, I, it's like such a beautiful memory. But at yeah. the time, as a kid, I'm like, oh my God, this is why everyone makes fun of me, you know? Yeah. And those feelings of like not being enough and being different. At the time when I was a kid, I thought I was the only person on earth who felt this. 
you know, now that I'm older, I know like everyone on earth actually feels the same exact feelings. Oh yeah. But when you're a kid, you're like, I first of all, I'm the only one who feels this. And second of all, I can't tell anyone I feel this, because then they'll make fun of me even more. So all of that is subconscious. Mm-hmm. So by the time I'm, you know, 18 and setting off on this journey, this subconscious story is running the fucking show. Yeah. And I'm out here trying to achieve a goal, and the flinch is like, no, 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 Mr. Alex, like, not, no, you know? Yeah. And just taking over. And one of the biggest things that I learned on the journey came from the CEO of Zappos, Tony Shea. And he said, he was talking about ego. And what he told me is like, sure, having an ego might not be the best thing, but even worse than having an ego is having it and not knowing you have it. Wow. And that like literally opened my eyes. It felt like ice water being splashed in my face. And that's what sort of set me on this path of like journaling and going to therapy and sort of unpacking these things where I realized, okay, I have these insecurities, right? It's all these insecurities that are like a cluster that I call the flinch. But really, at the end of the day, they're all these insecurities and fears. Yeah. At first, I tried to get rid of them. But I started to realize everyone, you know, even the most, you know, profound Buddhist monks still have fears and insecurities. Mm -hmm. The key isn't getting rid of your insecurities or hiding from them or running away from them. The key is accepting them and befriending them. Mm -hmm. If you're friends with your fears and you're friends with your insecurities, they're just, you know, these sort of sometimes annoying friends that tag along and like like to pipe in every now and then. But if they're (laughs) your enemy, sometimes you might win, sometimes they might win. Right. So it's like an internal war. Who the fuck wants to have an internal war every day? Yeah. And, you know, one of the best things I've ever read came from the book called When Things Fall Apart Mm. by Pema Chodron. And anyone who's going through a hard time, whether it's a breakup or death of a parent or losing a job, like, I cannot recommend the book higher. I've been meaning to read that book, actually. Life-changing, man. And she says this one thing. So she's this Buddhist nun. And... She said she was having difficulties dealing with her fears. So she goes to this guru and she goes, what's your relationship with your fear? And the guru goes, I agree with them. Oh. And I was like, wow, that's, that's deep. You know, yeah. like, he's like, I agree with my fears. And ever since I, I read that in the book, you know, I underlined it a hundred times. It's helped me reframe it from me battling my fears to me agreeing with my fears and almost Mm -hmm. saying, you know, let's say I'm afraid of, let's say I'm giving a speech and I'm nervous. You know, it happens. And instead of trying to like psych myself up and like listen to music or doing something to, you know, drown my fear, I go, oh yeah, I agree with that. That is probably something to be afraid of. Yeah, yeah. And this, the weirdest thing happens, the second I say that, the fear, it doesn't disappear, but it loosens its grip. And I can start, I can start moving again and grooving, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's, nothing is better than just loosening the grip. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm learning, that, I'm learning all this stuff myself, you know? And, yeah. I, and I think the thing is, is that like, 
this stuff never goes away. You just have to learn how to deal with it. Right. And like you have to learn how to accept where you're at, accept where things are at, and keep moving forward. Yeah. Because when you start to resist it, that's when things, that's when it, that resistance amplifies the fear mm-hmm. or amplifies what you're going through. So I totally get it. Dude, you're there, man. <laughs> I get it, man. I get it. And, you know, there's there's different spaces where you go in your ups and downs of your career. Um, you know, it's not always going to be up. You're going to come back down. And, you know, recently I've been learning that, like, mm. the true path to mastery is when you can come back through the dip. Mm after you see success and you dip and you come back out and you have to reinvent and you have to keep going and oh, I love that the fears that come along with that and it's definitely it's tough it's tough and then you but you just have to learn how to accept them and I love what you say about making them your friends that's great that's yeah. huge I, I didn't even think about that but. dude you have to read that book it's <laughs> unbelievable Definitely on my list. I've been crushing through books lately this last year because I found audiobooks. So audiobooks are my uh, audio. So I had just I just recorded the audiobook a couple weeks oh, ago, nice. and it was one of the most fun experiences of my life. That's great. I thought I would like it, but I had no idea that I would be just. I was in heaven. It was so fun. Yeah, it's. I'm sure it's a lot of fun, and it's it's always better when like the author actually reads it. I mean, I guess I wouldn't always say that, but like. You have such a dynamic personality that I'm, I'm <laughs> Thanks, sure it's going to be great. It was funny because I was saying that to like a publisher, or maybe it was my actually my agent, my literary agent. We we're talking about that. And she's like, actually, no. I mean, it really depends on the author. Yeah. <laughs> so that's funny. So yeah. So now you're. Uh, this is this book is seven years in the making. Yeah, it's crazy uh, to hear that, but it's yeah, it's true. But, yeah, you know, it takes time, right? Like you got to like build the life experience mm. and. Yeah. And go through it. What was one of the biggest lessons that you learned through the seven years of this, of actually making the book? You know, something you just said just triggered a, a memory of a great piece of advice I got mm. on the journey. And it sucks because it's not in the book. It had to be cut because it just didn't fit because oh, wow. we had to make it tight. But it's such a great piece of advice, especially for anyone out there who's making art. And it came from Pitbull. The rapper, you know, the Latin rapper. And he he goes, there's two ways to make art. Whether you're starting a business, you know, painting something, writing a book, there's only two ways to make something. The microwave or the slow cooker. (laughs) And he said, there's not a right or wrong way. But if you're kidding yourself and you're telling yourself, oh, I'm making slow cooker art and you're microwaving that shit, it's never gonna work. Mm. He's like, there's a time and place for each one. And there's a huge difference between you know, slow cooking and spending seven years on something and you know, the way a grandma cooks. It's spices yeah. and it's just sitting there. When you touch it, it's literally seven years of flavor in your mouth and you can taste it. Yeah. And sometimes there's you know, microwave art. And he said, it's not right or wrong to do one or the other, but you have to know what you're doing so you can be real with yourself and real with your audience on what it is. And I thought that was just such a good framework when it comes to making art. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And now you've you've uh, slow cooked the book. I did. I could not imagine slower cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so when does the book come out? The book is out everywhere June 5th. June 5th. So everywhere books are sold, audiobooks, ebook, Kindle, uh, bookstores, 
Amazing. So I'm so excited. Amazing. So what are your top three, obviously, I, you know, what are your top three recommends for books? Mm. You, you are like the book yeah. <laughs> nerd. I know you've talked about your like stacks of books in your, in your, your uh, storage, closet. storage closet. I pretty much have this tiny little office that I call the storage closet that's just pretty much hundreds of books in a desk. Oh my God. And it's like a really inspiring place to work. There's no windows, it's just books wow. in my desk yeah. and a little printer. I mean, I've become like a, such a book nerd too these days. I like, I love books, but. I would say my top three books. Oh, this is gonna be fun. If you had asked me this question like five years ago, I probably only would have said business books. Mm. But I'll actually share the books that that I would want to reread again right now. That have really, you know, touched me yeah. in a very deep way. Right. We've already talked about when things fall apart, so I'll say three new ones. One would be called Unbroken by Lauren Hillenbrand. Oh. And, you know, there was a big movie that came out that was directed by Angelina Jolie, but the book is... Right. The movie was good, but the book is unbelievable. And it is the greatest story of resilience and the strength of the human experience I've ever come across. Mm. Um, and I won't give away all the twists and turns of the story. It's a true story right. that takes place in World War II. And it's just... the. Not only is the story unbelievable, but the book reads like the best movie. You right, know? right, right. It's just so good. And if you're going through a tough time in life where you need to like remember what's possible, what human beings can survive, yeah. you have to read that book. So Unbroken. And it's just such a fun book. Yeah, great. Fun might be a funny way to put it. It's such an enthralling book. Right. Number two, ah. Uh, Everyone's going to laugh when they hear this, but I'm <laughs> fucking serious. Take me serious with this recommendation. It's Harry Potter. Really? This is the thing about Harry Potter. Like, I'll go toe-to-toe with anyone, and, like, it's just the greatest, one of the greatest books ever written in human history. And I'll tell you, one, first of all, that you can't argue with objectively, it's one of the, you know, best-selling, if not the best-selling commercial books of all time. Yeah. You know, it's just nothing has come close. You know, the Bible. That's about it, you know? Right, right. But beyond that, so that's objectively, if you're just curious, it's sort of like you want to be a musician and you've never heard Thriller. You know, the greatest selling album of all time. You should probably give it a listen, you know? If you're interested in story and you're interested in writing, it's shocking to me how many people are like, you know, oh, Harry Potter is for kids. I'm like, that's like saying Thriller is for teenagers. You know, it's the... yeah. There's a reason it's the best selling because it hits a nerve in the human experience. Mm. Give it a read. So that's the first reason. The second reason though, I never read Harry Potter as a kid. I read it in my 20s. And I actually read it as my dad was being diagnosed with cancer and passing away. Harry Potter, in my opinion, is the greatest book. Uh, you know, on the surface, it's a book about you know magic and Hogwarts and stuff, but that's not what the book's about. Mm. If you read it as an adult, it's a book on courage, family, death, friendship, and unconditional love. Mm. And I'm so grateful that J.K. Rowling wrote it as a young adult book so that it can get into the hands of young people. But every adult who reads it will see the underlying lessons and 
Some of the best quotes I've ever read have come from Harry Potter. Wow. It's just, they're hidden amongst this amazing <laughs> fantasy adventure, which is a ton of fun anyways. Yeah. That's number two. Number three is a book called Peace is Every Step. Oh, and it's, heard of it. it's incredible, and it's by this you know, wonderful you know, Buddhist monk who's, you know, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King. Like he's just a you know revolutionary, really wise guy, and all of his books are incredible. But the reason I like that book is it's like a really thin book, where the chapters are like three pages each, mm-hmm. and each chapter is pretty much a little story and idea about how your daily activities can cultivate peace. Mm. You know, we all see books about meditation cultivating peace or. Yeah, whatever, all that stuff. I think it's actually really, I love, I meditate, but I think it's really cool to read a book about how like waiting at a red light can (laughs) cultivate peace. Interesting. Um, How, you know, smelling a flower can bring world peace. Every, Mm. in the the book title, you know, Peace is Every Step is really about how even walking on the sidewalk can create peace if you do it the right way. I like that. And it's just a beautiful book that's so accessible. Um, anyone looking to be, you know, not only cultivate more peace internally, but to, you know, loosen their grip a little, yeah. which I definitely needed. It's highly, highly recommended. I love it. Awesome. Now, a couple other a couple other thoughts and questions. Yeah. In the book, and this is this is something fascinating. I, I admire your resilience. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Especially from all the rejection. That you experience pretty much seven years of rejection. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> Just reading the book, I'm like, oh my god! Like, how did you even like have the tenacity to come back and jump back into it? What advice would you give to somebody facing all this mm. rejection? I mean, this is especially important in the creative world because creatives experience oh rejection all the time, and sometimes it gets. I mean, I've experienced a lot of it. It gets exhausting. It gets like disheartening and and so many things. What have you learned about staying resilient through that? I completely agree with you. It's It doesn't matter if you're starting a business or you're an artist. When you're doing something that it's your, it's not a project to you, it's your life. Mm-hmm. And you're getting rejected, it stings in a way that nothing else stings. You know, if you're in school and you don't really care about chemistry and you get an F on your chemistry test, yeah, it sucks. But if, you know, your dream is to, you know, create this, you know, photo gallery and you, you know, put all your years into it and some, and you get rejected, it hurts in a way that goes so deep. Even though people tell you, oh, it's not personal. No, it's personal, <laughs> you know? So I definitely feel that. Yeah. I would say two things if you're going through that. Number one, and this is what I just learned from my experience, is that the times I would be the most beat up, where it felt like emotionally I was spitting up blood from all the rejections, the only thing that was able to save me from completely giving up, because I thought about giving up dozens and dozens of times, is when I had nothing. All I had left was a small idea of why this started in the first place. Mm. And for me, I just believe that if all these people came together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really to share their best 
wisdom with the next generation, young people can do so much more. Mm. So there would be points where, you know, I'd be rejected from Warren Buffett for eight months straight. And I would literally be like, there's no point to this. And when I was ready to give up, the only, the only thing holding me back was that small belief. And what I would tell someone who's going through it is hold on to it. Almost if you're on a desert island and you feel all alone, that's like your Wilson. Remember the movie Castaway, like the volleyball that he yeah. like talks to? Yeah. Your belief is your only friend at some moments. Mm. And like hold on to it. There's no shame. Like you're not being delusional. You know, just hold on to that belief. So that's the first thing I would say. Yeah. The second is sort of counter to what a lot of, you know, you hear a lot of self-help or business authors say like, you know, you know, work 24-7, never give up, you know, no days off. Fuck that, take a nap, you know? <laughs> and I, re I really mean that because when you're getting rejected, now look, if you're a CEO, like I'm all for grinding it out and pushing and pushing and pushing, but when you're just, when you're still trying to break through mm -hmm. and you're facing that rejection and you might not have hope that it'll work, sure, you know, taking breaks might not be the best thing, but the worst thing is completely giving up and losing hope. Yeah. And, you know, there's no shame in taking a day off or two days off and turning off your phone and just saying, fuck it, you know, and riding your bike or, you know, doing whatever you need to do to like recalibrate. You know, sometimes I would take a week off because I just literally was like, this is done. And what ends up happening is after I take my week off, I start getting bored. And then I remember that belief of why I started in the first place. <laughs> and I just take one step forward again. Yeah. And that's what let me through the rejections. Amazing. Love that. Thanks, man. Love that. Yeah, it's so so good to remember that to keep hanging on to that belief. Yeah. Of why it's why it's important. Mm -hmm. I love that. So a lot of the in the book, a lot of the people that you're interviewing were, were men. And I know there's a chapter in the book about women. I'd love to hear like what it, who are the women that you have interviewed but still want to interview? Mm. Who do you look up to? Yeah, so that that chapter, and it's a series of chapters where I have that realization, is in my opinion one of the, my favorite parts of the book where I sort of realize, you know, I open my eyes to reality. And if I had to, you know, look into the future of like who I'd really like to sit down with, oh my God, there's so many. Yeah. You know, Michelle Obama is a huge inspiration for me. You know, her ancestors were slaves and, you know, she was Barack's boss when they were at their law firm, you know? Right. Like people forget that she's just a boss, you know? Oh, she's a boss. She, like, she did First Lady as, like, a favor to him, you know? <laughs> like, she is remarkable. Yeah. So she's incredible. You know, there's the obvious people like Oprah Winfrey and Sheryl Sandberg who are very inspiring to me. But there's also people like Pema Chodron, the author of When Things Fall Apart, that to me are so inspiring. And what I've learned is that it's not always the most famous or the most powerful people who have the best advice. Right. You know, sometimes it's the, the best wisdom I've gotten in my life has come from my grandma or from my mom. Yeah. Or, you know, there's a whole section in the book where my sisters are like, you idiot, how did you not see this? And they're like, you know, yeah, taking me to school. And those are the people that really inspire me. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially this day and age, it's like, there aren't as many, that's what's interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine about this whole idea that there's not, we need to 
I want to help raise women up and bring them even more into the spotlight because there's not like the the Bill Gates and there's, you know, there is Oprah. There's a handful of them, but who are they? Yeah, I agree. Obviously, yes. Like they're like, you know, lessons can be learned from everyone. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. But you know, I think it's great to be going after the big ones. Yeah, and there's that great saying: you can't be what you can't see. Right. And that's why I applaud people like. Sheryl Sandberg, who, you know, she has a full-time job running Facebook as a, you know, chief operating officer, but she commits so much time to spotlighting other women and, you know, creating movements that help young women know what's possible. Yeah. And, you know, I respect that tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. So more of the story is everything is possible. I love that, man. I love it. Dude, well, thank you Alex, so much. Thank you uh, for coming on. Where can people find you on the interwebs, follow you, buy the book, and all that good stuff? Um, so the book, you know, anywhere online, Amazon, iBooks, you know, Kindle, it's all there. For, to like connect with me, and if you're listening to this, like let me know that you heard about the book through this, because it would be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the social handles are all the same, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's all at Alex Benayan, just A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. And the book website is thirddoorbook.com. So T-H-I-R-D, thirddoorbook.com. Got it. And I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you, man. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode of Neon Radio with Alex Benayan. I'm your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you could help me out by leaving us a good review over on the Apple Podcasts app. You can scroll down and just do that right there in the feed there and share it out on the social medias. You can do that with the short link, neonradio.com slash EP146. And don't forget, neon is spelled N-I-O-N. And with that, you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create your life by creating every small moment. And we'll see you next time. Next time.